You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. We get asked this question all the time. How can I make my land more productive? When you look at the native landscape and you're looking at how we can make everything more productive, it oftentimes comes back to replicating nature. Pure Natives allows you to do that with their custom seed mixes, all the way to their buffer mixes, pollinator mixes, all things native seeds from grasses to forbs. How could you go wrong with a company whose motto is hashtag plant your legacy? Get started planting natives with pureairnative.com. And check it out because each podcast listener can get a 10% discount by mentioning the Land and Legacy podcast. Welcome to Land and Legacy podcast. I am your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are going to jump into a very uh, hot topic right now this time of year. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I posted something on our Facebook page about um, kind of some asking for topics that people would like us to cover in this one. This one was requested quite a bit, um, and it's been kind of through emails. People are emailed in at info at um, and then also messaging in on social media handles. It's been kind of something that a lot of people are discussing. So this week's topic is going to be this off-season, winter time frame management, things you can do to improve your habitat. Um, we do have several things we need to cover before we jump into that. But if you're wanting to know what the topic is right out of the chute, that's what we're talking about. And there's a lot of observations that we have made over the last few days as we've worked several properties in southern Iowa um, and kind of very diverse properties. One property was mostly wooded. One property was a lot of kind of native prairie, old pasture, old field. Another one was a lot of uh, mixed habitats. Um, we And there's lots of snow on the ground. So we got a very firsthand look at exactly what the deer were foraging on and where they were making their living in, in the Midwest during the dog days of winter. A lot of good insights to be able to pull from, from, from these observations, and I'm sure we're going to talk um, a, a full hour's worth of observations and things that we commonly see on social media and, and kind of right, wrong, and how to get the most out of the habitat um, in each kind of area and what you're trying to do during this time frame because this is super important time frame for deer. Uh, th- to me, this is the, the best time of year to make the biggest impact for deer for your deer hunting next fall I agree. also he's been quiet in the back but um we never thought of a nickname and apparently oh, yeah. we sound a lot alike i don't see it or i don't hear it i guess i can't see that we sound alike but i don't hear it but we've had that comment a lot since chad's been on the podcast quite a bit so chad you got anything you want to add not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> you're saving up. You're saving, you're up. saving up all the, the uh, comments for later on. Yeah. And so um, very. I, I love this time of year as far as things to do. Now, unfortunately, 
it's a super busy time for us on the consulting yeah. side of things, so we don't get to actually do a lot of the work on our farm uh, during January, February, because we're on the road so much. For instance, we're recording this going down the highway right that's now. That's right. So if you hear the road noise and you're wondering, what in the world's that sound? That's what's just, happening. Just ignore We're it. going down south of Kansas City, headed back home. Um, what What's that? I've told this to several clients because they ask about our farms. The cobbler's kids don't have shoes. Yep. Um, that's kind of how we set this time of year where we don't get to do a lot of the work on our own farms because we're traveling so much. Oh. But as soon as we get time, I promise you, that's the first place we want to go. Speak speak for yourselves. <laughs> speak for yourselves. Chad well, actually gets to do work because he's a government employee and he's furloughed, so he's home all the time, still getting paid. We're not bitter about it at all. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, announcements. NWTF yes. National Convention coming up February 3rd. 14th, 15th, 16th. 14th, 15th, and 16th uh, in Nashville, Tennessee at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel and Resort, or whatever it's called. Um, we will be there through the whole show. We'll spend quite a bit of time in the Pure Air Natives booth. Um, we will have hats with us. But the most important thing is Saturday night, the 16th, we will be hosting an after show, after hours with Lana Legacy by Pure Air Natives. And we will be doing a seminar on native habitat and uh, wildlife management. And who knows where it will go. We don't even know what we're talking about or exactly how we're laying it out. But that's really going to be the gist of it. Here, here's what we know. And it's going on for like four hours. Yeah, it's going to be informative. Um, lots of Q&A time to meet a lot of people, um, a lot of people who love doing habitat management, who are looking to improve the land from all across the country. We're going to have them in a room, um, and we're going to do a podcast and a seminar. So, again, lots of great information, a chance to um, meet everyone who listens, and, and thank you guys. So and probably a podcast that will sound a lot like the time we were in Michigan probably a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was May of last year. Okay. Yeah. Well, it felt like this time of the year Ooh, in it Michigan. It felt like a long time. Um, so it'll be kind of a evolving door, I guess, or a revol- revolving door yeah. um, to where people just sit down and ask questions and make comments, and we'll just keep doing that. So don't miss it. Go to our Facebook page and please show your interest or if you're going so we can get an idea how many people are going to be there. It's going to be food and drinks, and uh, it's going to be a good time. So, and we're not on a one-hour time slot like if you've ever heard us speak at the National Convention for QDMA, where pretty much had the floor for an hour and then we sit sit down. We're going to be just hanging out in this room all night. So, come and see us. And if you've never been to Nashville for this show, it's one of the best ones to go to. It's a lot of fun. So, lots of fun. Lots of good people to meet there. Um, what else do we have to talk about? We the got Facebook group, yep, new Facebook group. Land Wildlife Conservation Community. You can find it on our Facebook page about middle of the way down. Go ahead and join that group if you love good conversation about habitat management, um, conservation, wildlife, land improvements, all that stuff. Um, people are commenting in at joining joining the group. Um, basically, we're looking to build a, a community where people from all across the America can share their approved techniques. None of that silly business anymore. Keyword approved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keyword approved. Don't bring some nonsense to that page, please, or uh, admins will likely delete it. Um, we want we want to help promote 
good, good sound habitat management practices. Yes. And then, I mean, right. c- because, and, and we're going to talk about some later today, uh, th- th- there's, there's bad ones out there, but let's, let's share good quality information. That's what we want that group to be um, and, and build a community around solid, solid advice. That's right. So, so join it if you're interested. Join it for sure. We're way more active on that one than any other Facebook group out there. So come and join it and uh, post all the stuff you're doing or ask questions. And uh, and we're going to have a lot of polls on there that are asking certain questions on what you guys are doing or what, you, what you're what you hoping to do over uh, the course of the year. Um, that pretty well, I think, covers most of our announcements. I think so. So getting into... This week's topic, um, it's th- it's a, it's a deep one. I mean, this is the time frame where hunting season is over, and people still have whitetails in their mind, and are looking forward to what they can do to improve things. Maybe they're frustrated, maybe they're annoyed, or maybe they understand that this is this is a good working window get out there on the landscape all the sign is out there um, from season rubs scrapes trails all this and that to go and learn properties um, but but then it's what do I need to do to make it better this is the window to do that and also this is the window of a super stress period for deer and in, in most portions of of the whitetails range it uh, can get downright nasty especially in the north um, but also throughout the Midwest. But once you start getting that snow and the ice and the cold temperatures, and it goes on and on and on, deer can really get stressed. QDMA just shared a great video where they were asked, uh, basically, what's the most influential way to supplemental feed during this time of the year? Of course, when you throw in that word supplement, um, people, deer hunters, will automatically start thinking of feed and Things that come in a bag. (laughs) And whatever. Any kind of just food that you can dump out there to get them to eat. And uh, Kip Adams did a great job of explaining that one of the best things you can do is through timber cutting, TSI, um, all kinds of different cuts that you could do to basically put trees on the ground. And a lot of those trees have little young buds um, already kind of forming on them. There's lots of woody browse available when you cut those trees. Not only are you providing immediate food but you're also opening up that canopy so um, this next growing season you should have a flush of new growth on the on the forest floor and it's it's crazy how fast the deer find that oh he chimed we're, in we're talking within hours of how quickly yeah. they I mean, find that stuff and, and if you do this on a day-to-day basis or one weekend you go out and you cut in three different three different pockets and the next weekend weekend you go out and you cut in three different pockets you're going to start associating that sound of the chainsaw and that smell with new food and and it'll start happening where as soon as you leave you start moving into forage and and i think it should should certainly be mentioned that you know there's there's definitely a difference um in tsi and bedding area thickets that we often talk about um just general tsi improving the stand of timber by cutting using a chainsaw puts those buds on the ground so you can do two things at once you can you can make food you can supplement the native forage at the same time as improving the stand of timber for long term maybe you're doing a crop tree release and adding more hard mast um you know in in your in that area 
for years to come. Or maybe you're improving the quality of the timber, removing some competition in weed trees. But at the same time, you're, you're supplementing forage. That's super, super important. You don't always have to go out there with the thought of, hey, I'm going to make this a bedding area. Go out there and cut with the thought of, I'm going to make this whole woodlot better. This, the timber's going to be better. It's going to offer much more for, for different varieties of wildlife. And yeah. I think we, can oft, we often overlook or, or just trying to specifically do things for one specific reason when really... It doesn't have to. It can be a broad spectrum type of management. For sure. And and there's a lot of, I mean, we've made several posts while we've been on this trip. Mm-hmm. There's been several comments that have came in that have been a little bit kind of like, ooh, we need to explain that more. Sure. Um, because there are certain things that that are happening um, that, that are trendy that have kind of shifted the paradigm of, of what people may believe. Um, one of those being, as we, as you just kind of explained, timber stand improvement of crop tree release, and really you see TSI done uh, in large scale. Chad, you probably see it quite a bit with government, um, with Forest Service, Mark Twain National Forest, where people are doing TSI to try and improve the overall value, long term value of that of that timber stand. But to me, the, the greatest thing about that is you get that benefit of, okay, we're, we're removing some of the weed trees. We are also making this, this stand of timber more profitable, profitable down the road. But also at the same time, we're putting food on the ground and also opening up that canopy to where there'll be more food growing from the ground within reach of a deer. They're getting more cover. It's one of those things that we just go crazy about because it's a win for everybody yeah absolutely and, and i think you talked about you know the the common things that that are, are seen especially on the social media uh platform of i'll just bring up the hinge cut when i think of hinge cut there's there's the opportunity of course for forage um immediate and and it's some immediate cover there but long term I see a flush cut offering more forage and benefit to the overall landscape than a hinge cut. To me, the hinge cut's kind of like the last opportunity or, or last cut of choice for me in, in most instances, specifically from the TSI standpoint. You know, if, if you're going to do TSI, go ahead and just cut it down. Kill it. Well, yeah, d- <coughs> so I think the, we the, get the, the topic that people have said or the question that keeps coming in is people have gone – we shared, so let's just share. talk about one observation we made. Uh, one of the properties we worked had a heavy TSI project done in prior years, and there's different ways to kill these trees. You know, sometimes you may think TSI, okay, well, if you're trying to release the crop trees and remove the weed trees, well, then you're just going to go in and cut this tree down. Well, that's not always how they kill these trees. There's hack and squirt, um, then there's girdle and spray, uh, but then there's just girdling that people have done to where you basically, in the process of, of cutting or going to this tree, you cut in a few inches and two bands around the tree. Um, we're not huge fans of just girdling um, without any herbicide because on a broad scale, if you were to say, okay, I'm going to go just girdle a bunch of trees, you may girdle whatever types of trees there are out there but a hickory and an oak are going to be a lot tougher 
to kill with that. We've seen lot, and this time and goes time again. From, from many states, places, time and time again, where you'll see a hickory tree or an oak tree, and it's been girdled with two bands, and it still manages to grow around that girdle and continue to grow. So now you just have a, a tree that's opened up with a wound to making it more susceptible for disease, but it's still the, the job that you wanted to complete wasn't completed. Um, and so we, we shared that picture. We had a couple comments about people saying why we didn't just hinge that tree or why, why wouldn't a hinge cut be more beneficial. A hinge cut is not a management practice for timber stand improvement. You won't see a forester going around recommending hinge cuts to make the, the timber more valuable. I, I think it's Hin- kind of in the name, timber stand improvement. improvement. Hinge cutting on a large scale is not an improvement to timber stands. Chad, Chad, when we comment on that a little what? bit from a, from like a forester's logger's you know standpoint, when they come in and see something that's just been hinged, specifically high hinges or, or in, <laughs> hinges in general, what are they going to say? What are they going to look They're at? They're going like, to laugh at it. And, okay, and look at it as you've destroyed a stand of timber. Honestly, I mean, because it, it's going to be in the way. It's going to add more work to to a logger that's coming in. They can't navigate. Then no, because there's stuff that's head high in there sure and i i think we see a lot of people fall into a trap of a if one thing works they're going to do it through the whole thing well i want a hinge cut i'm going to do a whole bunch of hinge cutting or well then i'm going to flush cut everything i'm going to cut all of them and sometimes when you've got some of those timber stands that are really really thick and it needs a lot of cutting it ends up becoming a you you pretty much blocked everything from walking in there. It's so thick that nothing wants to go in. That's why we generally, on our own place, cut. We try to say like a thirds, I guess, don't we? Yes. I mean, it, try to it, girdle some. If you were to say we hinge cut, which we do, we're not totally against hinge. There's cutting. some trees I walk up to. I'm like, oh, you're getting hinged. I like it. Well, I think, one, but I think when one people thing, fall into the trap of they think that. Hinge cutting is the only way to add structure for sure. cover. Yep. It c- because it happens it's instant. It's instant cover. It's very visual. But a, a lot of times our flush cutting will add cover two, three years down the line where their hinge is two, three, dead. And that's an important time to note that the, the hinge cut adds immediate cover, but two, three years down the line – a lot of times How you would have to almost cut that tree again to get it back down within reach. Well, but if you flush cut a tree. If it stays alive. If it stays alive. We saw it a lot this week with hickories mm-hmm. that were still alive where I had to go and knock the limbs back down because they were already 10 foot high. They were out of reach. But if you look at a flush cut, you don't get that instant cover. I mean, you do with the trunk falling on the ground. It's not as two to three foot off the ground like you may hope but in a year even you'll get some growth that's already providing cover already providing forage but when you try to when you come back and you manage that with fire and it knocks it back you're keeping that within reach where it's still beneficial it's still providing great forage it's still providing cover but you can keep it maintained when you do a high hinge cut unless it's a heck of a fire the only way to maintain that long term is to come back and knock it down again. Well, come not back to and cut the same stuff you already cut. Not yeah. to mention a cut at at chest high, the the uh, stump sprouts and stuff are out of reach 
within a no year. Time. Yeah. So they're already. I mean, yeah. you're you're cutting it and not bringing the level of the of benefit that you could to a deer's level when it comes to a forage opportunity. Of course, there's the immediate buds on on the ground from the canopy that hits the ground, but that is minuscule in comparison to what long-term it can do and can benefit if you do a normal hinge cut or if you do a flush cut. Um, A hinge, in most cases, is not the most preferred cut, yet we see it all the time in the whitetail world. I think it's it's popular, it's trendy, it's it's something that's that's cool and different, Um, but truthfully, a good old-fashioned, and we talk about it a lot on the podcast, but a good old-fashioned just timber harvest where trees are cut, removed, there's tops everywhere, um, sunlight can get down to the forest floor. That's when you see, to me, in, 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 in our eyes, diversity on the forest floor, tons of vegetation um, that's beneficial to deer. That's when it's like, man, now it's getting good. If, if you were to say, paint me a picture, ideally if you have timber, you need to do some sort of management on it, timber stand improvement, whatever it is consult with a forester in your area to figure out how you can improve the overall value of that of that woodlot whether that be a timber harvest or a a large-scale timber stand improvement project manage that timber you're going to open it up make it more profitable um, in the long run or right away uh, but also make it healthier in the same time you're going to improve the um, huntability and the habitat on your property but now if you're looking at going, well, okay, how can I concentrate? That's where we may get into a half acre of more aggressive borderline. It could be a clear cut. It could be some hinge cuts. It could be just a heavier dose of TSI to where there's more immediate cover in that half acre or full acre. Um, that's what we call the bedding thickets because that seems to get, once you get more aggressive and you have more structure on the ground, um, deer are going to use that more than just the occasional treetop scattered across the landscape. Um, and that's really what our focus is. If you look at a lot of our, our plans or um, came to our farm, you'll start seeing some TSI, but then you'll have in, in designated areas bedding thickets, which may be a straight clear cut or it may have a combination of all sorts of different things. I would say in general most of the bedding area thickets, and here's, a, I guess, a number to shoot for, I would say are 80 to 90% open. Yeah. When yep, we yeah. select an area that's like, okay, we really want deer to bed here. It's safe. We're not going to we're not going to, you know, be in here. We're not going to disturb it. Let's go ahead and just make this half to acre size, acre and a half, just the best bedding that it can be. And that's where the more sunlight you get, and here's another I guess observation we kind of all talked about, is when there's adequate sunlight, you see quickly representations of, of different types of vegetation come in there. Um, like like when it's more of a 60% open, what we saw this weekend um, in this landscape was some multiple rows. Um, some. <laughs> yeah. Some multiple rows. Lots. Go- gooseberry. And lots. Um, some brambles. Lots of woody saplings. When you say brambles, we're talking blackberries and raspberries mainly. Correct. Um, and then, of course, your gooseberries, multiple rows, buck brush. And buck brush. Th- those are probably the main ones. More shade you tolerant. See. And, really? and not only that, I think those um, are more shade tolerant, but also because of the lack of fire, there was never this 
uh, breath of fresh air, if you will, or this cleansing um, disturbance. Of the There's this disturbance that opened up, burned off the leaf litter to allow some of these other herbaceous plants to kind of get that spark to start Very growing. little of your desired, like, oak regeneration. Yes. yes. It was all Small so, taste. the way it was managed, there was very little of your desired regeneration coming in. Yes. Yeah. But in, in other areas, in a couple places, where when it was opened up a lot, or like in the very center of one of these cuts uh, that people had done in the past. Well, the, the we difference was TSI, where it was just focusing on, a, on several species, but then in the other areas that were timber harvest where a timber harvest happened, mm-hmm. there was this bigger expansion of canopy removal to where that's when you saw more herbaceous plants um, come in. We, we saw, saw a lot of goldenrod yep. in the middle of the timber. We saw Imagine a lot that. of um, bottle brush grass, some of our other native rye, um, and I'm not talking cereal rye when I say native rye, Canada wild rye, Virginia uh, rye, um, a lot of those coming up. Um, just a, a, a lot more diversity once you get that more of an open canopy. So that's where I think a lot of people could be turned off on TSI is saying, okay, well, I did TSI, and all I got was briars. Or, or all I got was saplings. Yes. One of the biggest things is try to continue maintaining that. If your state allows you to do prescribed fire, do prescribed fire. If you're in a state like Pennsylvania or New York and you can't do prescribed fire, I mean, you're like, why would I want to just get briars? Briars is still better than wide open park setting timber. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in in, in parts of PA you, you can, can burn. You can. It seems like most New of the York, people that reach out to us, New York is like are in a place where no they go. can't. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times the TSI they've done, they haven't got it open enough to exactly. let any sunlight hit the floor yeah, either. Exactly. And that's yeah. the thing. Like when that's why like throwing out like the visuals of of the canopy, like eighty to eighty ninety percent, hundred percent open clear cut and these veterinary things that's cutting like everything yeah i don't i don't want to like sound silly but like legit you can't go in there and expect to drop five or six trees and expect to have all these grass and stuff like it's a, almost a legit clear cut well you got to get the sun in there i know adam and i talked about this i think matt you were on another spot but mm-hmm. we saw in some of that were the uh, previous landowner had cut tsi in there in on the one property they were a lot of people get scared to cut oak trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you yes. could go in there and you could see where they'd only cut hickories. There were some really junky oaks mm-hmm. that they didn't cut because they don't want to cut any oaks. And I think a lot of people fall in that trap because they think, oh, well, my deer need acorns to survive. But you can't be scared to cut oak trees a if they're A crappy oak junk. tree. Yeah. No. That's I, where so Especially many white oaks. I see can, that with white oaks a lot. Yes, you'll see that... Uh, scroll the internet you'll see tons of people that'll talk about not wanting to leave their oaks a well, lot of the a lot of the crappy oaks in these areas that cut i don't know if you guys know it but a lot of them were hollow like oh you'd, yeah. you'd get in yeah. there and just you see boom, that everywhere just eat the salt just eat through it and it's like gone yeah nothing that, stressed you can't just you can't do tsi based on you uh, a lot of times and I, I i should backtrack a little before i make that statement but tsi shouldn't be Cut this species, leave this species, leave that species, cut that species. It should be, and even on the bedding thickets, it should be find the healthy trees that you're wanting to leave and you're wanting to release and cut everything else that's going to cause that tree to not be as healthy. 
Um, and that's, I, you know, cutting at the farm quite a bit here lately. I, I've thought of maybe a, a video for you guys to do is, is going around and cutting, picking some of these trees that are like white oaks and going and saying this one will be hollow and cut it. Because you can generally look through the timber and see a tree and be like, that one's suppressed. I bet it's at least dead in the center. And you'll mm-hmm. cut them and they're dead in the center. Yeah. And that, that tree's just sucking nutrients from a great from a good tree. Well, That's it's all sucking it's nutrients and, you know, potentially blocking some more sunlight too. It's never yeah. going to be anything. So just expedite it. Get it out of there. It's gone. Make it firewood. There you go. So, a couple observations. What, ask yourself, or whenever we make this question, we'll, we'll throw out some co- questions for you, for the listeners to kind of think about your farm and think about the deer herd in your area or, or the overall wildlife in your area. What are deer eating in your neck of the woods right now? What do you believe deer to be bedding in this time of the year in your neck of the woods? What is it that is providing forage to help carry the deer right now all the way to spring green up? You guys got any other questions you want to throw out there? Those are some of the biggest. Those are. No, those were a lot of our conversations this whole week. Okay, so you're in crop country. You may have said, well, they're probably eating some spilled grain. They're probably going around and they're eating what little bit of standing beans or what was spilled out of the combine Um, i see them out in fields digging around in the snow what are they eating Um, you can make that observation from a long ways and make an assumption but chances are you may have missed it Um, let's say you're in timber country and you're like well they're probably digging around looking for acorns Um, there's still some red oak acorns in my area that's probably what they're eating um or you're in kind of mixed pasture and you're going, I don't know, they're probably eating some in the timber, they're eating some in the fields. I'm really not sure. So we cruised three main properties while we were in southern Iowa. And there is one that's got a lot of crops. And, and each one of these had some crop fields. There's one that had heavy TSI done three, four years ago. Get off that rumble strip. Just make and, sure you're uh, awake. And then there's another one that's got a lot of just closed canopy timber, crops, old pastures. Um, bar none, hands down, the most, and, and the snow fell a few days before we got here. So most of the tracks we saw were pretty stinking fresh. Bar none, the most tracks, the most deer sign, the most activity that we found on all these farms were in the areas of heavy TSI. And I will say this, we covered these properties. We saw lots and lots and lots of grounds, lots of acres to observe. It was close to 2,500 acres that we've seen so far. I mean, reiterate, this is crop country. There were crops. We saw standing beans all over. Yep. We saw standing corn one day. Well, that's where we're going. As soon as we get out of the TSI, TSI, bar none, most tracks, most sign, most deer we saw. Walking around, we're in those areas. Yep. Going to a crop field, standing bedding, beans. Bedding as well. Bedding. That's where all the beds were. Standing beans. Lots of tracks. Lots of trails leading to and from it. But the most activity of where it seemed that a lot of deer were eating were pulling up green weeds 
or green grass growing in the crop fields? I saw a lot of the tracks, like you, you'd see deer go out to the field and then they'd get to the edge and walk the edge around. Yes. It was like a pass through, not necessarily like that's the crops, they're standing grain, I'm heading there, I'm staying in there and I'm feeding. It was a pass through, more of well, a transition it's, area. It's not to say they weren't eating the beans. Sure. They were eating them some, but More. I think a lot of people lose track of the fact that deer need a variety. Yeah. They don't eat solely grains all through the winter. And I think people get lost in like crop country. Well, they eat crops. Those deer, those deer have it made. They they've got plenty to eat all year. But I mean, how many corn like cut cornfields we walked through that there were zero tracks because there was no food. Zero. With the modern no combine, there is very, very little spilled grain. And where we were walking through, cornfields might as well be a biological desert, even if there is corn stubble, because there was hardly any tracks going to it. There was hardly any sign of deer finding food in there. Um, when it came to the cut soybean fields, almost the same thing. Now, there are a little bit more spots where there may be a few stems where the unlevelness of the field caused the, the combine to miss them and deer were eating that. But as a whole, the crop fields were providing very, very little food as far as cut crop fields. And I don't mean to interrupt, but the, the length or the, or the time frame in which most crop fields are productive for deer is very minimal when when you look at a full calendar year with with the combine um with everyone harvesting most of the grain with corn growing um you know and, and let's just say half the acres out there in crop country that's not forage during their growing season sure they'll eat some they'll damage it we get that but but they're foraging a lot of other things during that time frame too but it's like you know there's such an appeal to to crop country and it can be good I, I think more of the appeal f from my standpoint uh, you guys would probably agree with the crop country is the fragmentation of the landscape like it it bottlenecks deer down and funnels them and puts them in areas that are like well deer have to be there they're not bedding down in the wide open and it's a little bit easier to hunt um, but when it comes to overall productivity of each and every acre it's not always the best no People are probably thinking, you're crazy. But I'm serious. A lot of open areas are left vacant or unproductive throughout many portions of the year. Whereas if you look at an area that's got TSI, there's browse consistently. And that's where, circling back, that's why there was so much sign in the TSI areas. We're talking about the most sign we found in crop country was in the woods. Absolutely. In the middle of the winter with snow on the ground. Why is that? Because, and, and that's not just any, any track of timber, any set of woods. This was a very specific, this timber had heavy TSI, lots of underbrush, lots of uh, stump sprouts, lots of woody browse. And that's why there was so much sign in there. It wasn't because, oh, in a very vague statement, say, well, in crop country this time of year, deer were in the woods more. No. They were in this section of timber that had been heavy TSI'd. It's kind of like, like in the snow. It's like digging through a snow cone to get to the bottom of the snow cone because there's a treat down there. Like, your face would be cold. 
Well, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, you see them pawing around, digging for stuff. They don't put their nose down in the cold. But we, if there's forage and browse above the snow level, well, that's a lot more accessible. We also went through that area where it was close canopy timber. There was a cornfield next to it that was cut, and the deer were pawing at the side of a hill looking for any little green. There was fescue there, and it was like they were trying to find any little maybe, greens uh, Maybe like a little that. piece of clover or something yeah. up underneath the, weed. the fescue. Yeah, or, or a weed or cheatgrass, whatever. Yes, and, and so it became very obvious to us that Woody Browse, top, dot, top source of food in that part of the world, Right now. Right now. In crop country. But also, adding more greens to the mix was going to be a needed thing for that farm, for that landowner to do. So adding, instead of just leaving, paying the farmer, having the farmer leave the soybeans, they're going to need to add diversity of cover crops, basically, in those same fields to where now they're providing more forage to help relieve some of the stress during this time of the year. And that's how you make those crop fields more beneficial for longer periods of a year. Put yes. something back in there. Don't let it just sit idle. And it Do only something. improves your hunting because oh, yeah. now you've got a variety of food sources to where if it's October, November, December, January, February, there should be always something there to eat. We've, got a, we've no got a checklist we have to go through of things to do during the winter months to improve your habitat. Before we do that, do you guys have anything else you want to state? We noticed the observation of more deer, more activity, more beds, more tracks, more everything when it comes to deer in the heavy TSI areas, woodlots, surrounded by crop fields. So major observation, very little sign in the crop fields um, just because very little, very little grain. Now, if you're one of those people that have standing crops, then you probably will see some, uh, some activity around them. But if you're like a lot of people, most of your crops get harvested, so there's not a whole lot of food there. So they have to resort somewhere else for the to find food. That's where we strongly encourage you to do timber stand improvement um, and all of these other. There's a whole long list here, or not a long list, but a list of things you can do. And at the same time, we're going to provide some forage and cover in the coming years. Nothing? All right, here we go. Number one thing you can do to um, improve the value of your property, improve the habitat of your property. And this one is a very bold blanket statement, um, can be used in a lot of different areas. But number one thing to do this time of year to improve your farm and make it better for the wildlife, and this one in particular, improve the value of your timber, TSI. Timber stand improvement. Do it on your place. If you have timber, go in. Consult with a forester uh, in your area. But try to find the trees that have value and basically look to see what is causing them to not provide as much value. What's causing them to not grow as fast? What's causing them to not provide as much um, hard mass? What What is harming that tree? What's competing with that tree? So go in, find your weed trees, remove them, release those crop trees. And a weed tree, like we said earlier, it's not a crop tree being a white oak and a weed tree being an American elm. It's a weed tree could be any species out there. It could be a white oak. It could be a black walnut. It could be a cherry. It could be a, a long list of trees that you may think, 
just because they're there that's going to provide income, it can still be a weed tree. You need to thin your timber and make it more productive for the wildlife and more productive for you. The, the key statement to that is if you don't know what you're doing, consult a forester. There don't go. go in and start just blindly running a chainsaw. And there was, there's, in many states, the opportunity to get free forestry management plans by working with your state. There's, they, there's a wealth of information yeah. out there. Don't, they're there don't to just help go you. in and chainsaw blindly. Here's a oh, go ahead. You Chad. can you can always leave a tree, but once you cut it down, you it's can't down. get it back in your yeah. lifetime. Duct tape don't fix that. No. <laughs> um, there was a consultation that the John, who, who you guys heard from a while back um, in Tennessee, uh, one of his concerns or his family's concern was was cutting the timber, and he was new to hunting, new to to managing things, um, but. From his, his observation um, and not knowing a lot about the health of trees and being able to identify stressing um, and, and characteristics like that in, in a forest or in a timber stand, um, as we were walking the property, just very quickly identified some things that you know he could observe and took, for example, a sapling that was extremely stressed. It's like, what do you think this tree, uh, like, like look at it, like, oh, it just looks like a, a normal growing sapling wherever and like one or two little pushes and the thing just pops snaps and breaks it's like it's outside looks decent but other characteristics you can say you can see it was under stress and it folded and, and it's like even though things may look like they're healthy that's not always the case until you know what to look for no and the, you know <clears throat> you can go into timber when i was marking timber in in southern missouri we carried a ball peen hammer for sounding trees mm -hmm. and you would see a lot of big black oaks that you think boy that's a really nice tree and you hit that thing with a ball peen hammer and it sounds like a gourd yeah i mean just absolutely hollow as can be but you'd never know unless you hit it there sure and i think also on the tsi point you know as far as timber value you walk into a stand of timber and there's a lot of trees that offer me no value because they are not worth any money whatsoever but being on the ground they offer wildlife a whole lot of value absolutely your elms your black gums your a lot of those your dogwoods a lot of those trees if they're on the ground they offer a ton of browse to deer there's no, there's no question um and, and that's kind of like understanding we always ask before we go on you know consultation or property it's always what are your goals what is the goal for this property? You know, do you need it to make uh, financial returns for you in the future? Um, you know, is this strictly a wildlife property? That will dictate the types of recommendations that we're going to make to certain areas and to certain um, portions of timber. Because, you know, knowing that um, may determine how aggressive some, some areas are going to be. Um, because we know that the more sunlight there's more forage on the ground more more cover but you know we have to find the balance when we make these recommendations and talk with clients is okay well is this are you needing a harvest on this property um to help swing it later on to make payments or, or whatever it may be um you know again understanding those goals is super important from day one what's your goal for this area what does it need to be? 
What's what's next there on the list? Bedding thickets. Ooh. So that could be a combination of TSI, hinge cutting, clear cutting. But bedding thickets is something you've heard us preach about, talk about so much this past fall. Have success over, too. Because we we had so much success with our uh, with our deer hunts. I mean, this is the least amount of hunting we've done this entire shoot, since I was in high school, probably. Um, since I started bow hunting this fall, we hunted the least amount. And we had arguably the best season for us. Is, and when you look at the number of days we hunted based on our on our tags filled so uh, a lot of that has to do with bedding thickets and improved bedding and improved cover on our farms Um, so look at your food plots look at the areas that you're hunting maybe it's a saddle look at the bottlenecks look at where some of your top spots and say how could i how can i put bedding closer to this if if bedding is lacking good bedding is lacking on your farm Try to implement bedding thickets. If you have timber country and you're like, man, they move so sporadically through this timber, how can I, how can I put them and kind of have more defined travel patterns? A bedding thicket is a great option. It's not horrible labor. Uh, it doesn't. You may say, well, a clear cut's not very aesthetically pleasing. I'm not doing that. Don't put them right next to the road. Put them off in the timber. Put them off in the in, on a slope. Put them away from the road. You don't want them butted right up next to the road anyway. And yeah, go in there. You shouldn't be disturbing and seeing these things on a daily basis. As take a half travel. acre or a full acre and go in and basically select the area. And if there are a few valuable trees, cut everything else around them and leave those few valuable trees. If there is no value, go in there and cut everything, an entire acre. And I guarantee you're going to see a more, um, you're going to see a lot of activity going to and from that area, especially if you're in timber country like us and you have a lot of closed canopy and there's not great cover, not only are you going to see more uh, distinct travel patterns going to and from, but during the late winter stress period, you're going to see um, you could go in there and have great places to shed hunt in March, um, knowing that deer are spending a lot of time foraging and using it for bedding. So, And someone's going to ask, how quickly can I expect something to use that as a bedding area well less than an hour sometimes uh, yeah Uh, in in general though this is the reason why we'd love to cut this time of year because if you do it before spring green up you have a full growing season before you come back in and hunt it to allow vegetation to come back in and grow we're talking things like ragweed we're talking things like blackberry um what else did we see we saw mayor's tail we saw mullen we saw um, things in the mare's tail, in the, in one of our bedding thickets. I don't remember seeing in mare's the tail. in the TSI, oh, no, no, in, no, the, in the in the, uh, the Prairie Hollow property. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. Being a summer annual, and a lot of people probably cringe when you said mare's tail. Um, it came back. It's one of those things that over time is going to be replaced by perennials. Sure. Um, but it is one of those things. That it's better structure. It's better than nothing. <laughs> it will hide a deer. Um, it's it's way enough. better than just leaves laying on the ground. It's Absolutely. better than buckbrush. Um, pokeberry is a big one you're mm-hmm. going to see come in. Um, you know, it's just a long list of very beneficial, um, very beneficial 
herbaceous plants that are going to fill back in and provide great forage. And then as summer progresses, they're going to turn into cover as well. So, I'm anxious to see what comes in after we burn some of these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, and burning is definitely a way to speed up the process and um, add some disturbance to where you're going to stimulate some other plants, some seeds to germinate and start growing. So we would encourage you to do that if your state permits and, and of course, follow all the all the uh, fire plan rules and and uh, make sure you're obi obeying the law. Uh, so bedding thickets, don't overlook it. This is the time of the year to put them in, and so please, please, please think about how you can how you can add them to your place. I promise you, you won't regret it. The next one, I'm a little bit hesitant to even add it to the list, but I'm going to anyway. And I'm before I even say it, I'm just going to say, don't overdo it. Don't think this is the new golden child to habitat management. And don't think that this is the number one thing any habitat manager should do because it's not. It's overrated, but it is something you can do this time of the year. Hinge cutting. You can add some hinge cutting so our bedding thickets is where it would come in. If you're really trying to get some, some cover, you're, you have an area where, okay, there's nothing here. You have the species that can tolerate hinge cutting. Certain species don't have the makeup to where they want to hinge cut. You're going to start cutting through them, and all of a sudden they're going to splinter and break off, and you're like, what in the world? I thought that thing was supposed to stay together. There's only there are certain species that and do better at hinge cutting. Dangerous as can be. Very, oh, very those, dangerous. Some of those uh, shagbark hickories we cut oh. this, this weekend, somebody that's not prepared, it would have killed them. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't... Okay, if you're out hinge cutting, let's say you're headed to the farm, you're listening to our podcast, they release on Tuesday, but you listen to it Saturday morning as you're heading out to the farm, and you're like, I'm going to do some hinge cutting. If you find yourself picking that saw up shoulder high to hinge cut, you need to go to a chainsaw training. Uh, stop it. Just stop <laughs> yeah. it. Just take yeah. the chainsaw. Take a class, um, please. Shut it off, and then take the saw, pick it up in your hand. And try to coordinate where you're at in the woods and then head back to the truck and put the saw in the back because you're not prepared to do hinge cutting. Don't, or cutting don't, period. don't, 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 no, 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 no. Don't put a hinge cut that's head high. Just don't do it. There's lots of reasons people want a hinge cut. Um, and if you want it, let's put us in a corner and say, what are the benefits of hinge cutting? You can get some cover. You can get some forage. And those two things is why hinge cutting is so cool, but it's also so trendy. But if you're cutting so high, you're losing out on a majority of the great benefits for forage because you're going to get stump sprouts out of that stump, even though it's the tree is still alive if you've done it correctly. But as soon as if you cut a head high and you get those stump sprouts, they're not within reach of the deer, so you're missing one of the key benefits to a hinge cut. Put that thing down at knee level. And don't go crazy with it. Don't do it to where you cut 10 trees and 70% of those trees are hinge cut. You've gone overboard. My my favorite outside of the bedding thickets is the occasional dogwood. Yeah. I love mm -hmm. to hinge a dogwood mm -hmm. here and there. A flowering dogwood. Because they put off so much browse. Was it last year, Matt, that we walked into the one place I'd cut and I'd hinged a dogwood and it was a it was a pretty big flowering dogwood, and it had everything within a deer's reach yeah. was eaten, and then it was yeah. blooming 
above that. That's right. Yep. And it had stump sprouts, if I remember yeah, right. It still had stump sprouts. So there's multiple opportunities for forage at a, at a the level of a deer. But in and it's it is in this in this point it's species specific based on the characteristics of the tree itself or the the species of tree. Yeah. Some hinge better than others, but in in all reality, no matter what, if you just flush cut a tree, you get cover, you get a lot of forage, and you get sunlight right there. Because yep. even flush cutting a, a dogwood right now, you still have those big those big buds, those big buds that the deer so love. So attractive, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Next thing, edge feathering. Oh yeah, this is a great time of the year to do some edge feathering. Um, actually. While you're going to observe some of your food plots, season's wrapped up, you're doing some uh, shed hunting, or you're just observing what's happening on your farm, notice the amount of growth you're getting on your food plots um, in the middle versus along the edge next to the timber. You're going to probably notice a difference between the two, and that's because you have food plot species, um, let's say wheat and turnips, that are competing for nutrients with the large trees growing along the edge. This is why we rec- one of the reasons why we recommend edge feathering. Edge feathering, basically, as the name says, you're feathering that edge. You're removing some competition for the food plots to express more potential. Um, they're not competing. The food plot species aren't competing with trees growing right on the edge. But you're creating um, more nutrients and sunlight reaching that food plot. And also, because you're removing or cutting those trees along the edge, there's going to be more sunlight reaching the forest floor, so you're going to get more herbaceous plants, more beneficial species along the perimeter of your food plot. And that does a lot of things. You get more woody browse, you get more summer forage, you get better cover, you make deer feel more comfortable in your food plots, um, you help with possible erosion. Lord help us, I, I hope you're not fighting erosion in your food plots. Um, if you are, consider no-till drilling or br- broadcast spray and Cultipacking, and uh, what else? The, the what other else thing that you get? notice right now with edge, that you're lacking without edge feathering is how open it is from your food plot into the timber. Yes, if you if this you're is standing the perfect in, time to see how open it mm-hmm. is and how far you can see into your timber. That's right. If if you can go into your food plot and look and see 200 yards back in the timber, you need to change something up. Edge feathering is a great way to bust that up and add um, add some diversity, add some cover, add some more forage to your farm. And there was Adding more forage off the edge into that edge feathering area is only going to re- relieve some of the pressure that's put on your food plot. There was actually a post in the new Facebook group showing edge feathering. Yes, that's right. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that we've lost. We've gotten you know kind of out of touch with with shrubs in general. I think we mentioned this in the podcast a little while back. Um, What's a shrub? <laughs> exactly. It's like people, if, if you were to walk up to most deer hunters, one, some people have a tough time just identifying trees, much less name me a shrub. You know, it's like, wait, what? But a shrub, when it comes down to it, um, it is, I don't want to compare it to a, a stump sprout, but in essence, it, it can be of that same height, Woody Browse offers that, offers cover and structure in a different type of form. But and it, and it, it do- it's at that height level that's so beneficial for so many species. And it so doesn't come in the form of, of, they don't all come in the form of a shrub that's planted in a landscape planting in your in your yard. Correct. It's not going to be three foot tall and bushy. It may be eight foot tall in the form of an American plum. Um, 
but it's still a shrub. It's mm-hmm. still providing forage, can provide um, soft mass, whatever. It, it, there's a whole long list of benefits. A lot of cover. A lot of cover. Lots of cover. Yes. Lots and so cover. shrubs, don't overlook the power of shrubs. Plant them, love them, learn to love them. Um, and that's one of the things, like, if you are if you were to say, okay, what can I do to my farm right now? Uh, okay, I've got TSI, bedding thickets, hinge cutting, edge feathering. Okay, I've got a food plot. I want to make it better. Um, I notice the edge of the food plot's not growing as well. Well, edge feather. Remove some of that competition. At the same time, improve the cover around your food plots. And funnel deer. And funnel deer. So when we're looking at a deer, and uh, we're looking at hunting a deer, and you've got this bad problem of a mature buck or a buck will come and stand at the edge back in the timber and he'll just stare out in the food plot until he feels comfortable to enter. If you've got this edge feathering around it, you've got this huge growth of uh, beneficial species and shrubs and you're going, man, you can't see through that. It's 10 yards, uh, 10 to 20 yards. Hopefully you've got some variance in there of your edge feathering depth from the food plot. But the deer can't see into it. So if you're calling or it's late season, he has to come into the food plot to know if there's anything in there. So that's a huge, a well, huge, and you guys, huge it's huge. You guys have talked about it before, but the open and open and closed hinge cutting or the yeah, edge, feathering. edge feathering. Whoa, 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 oh, Chad, easy yeah. on that word. <laughs> well, I mean, you use the hinging in that. <laughs> yeah. But you can really steer deer and steer the steer them into a food plot the way you want them to come into it the food plot. It becomes right. a, like a little unfair because That's they right. they'll do it ninety percent of the time. It's like when when basically when a deer stands up in a, in a designed correct layout. If if a deer stands up from a um, bedding area thicket a hundred yards off a food plot, once he stands up and makes that decision that he's coming to a food plot. You can basically dictate exactly where he's going to step out. Not not and always. How he's going to cross that food plot. Not always. I mean, my my last hunt of the year. <laughs> you can generally expect if ten deer walk the same path, you would expect them all to walk the same path. But that isn't always how it goes. Uh, until one gets nudged. Yeah. Right? Until one takes an antler. Right in the rear. <laughs> That's funny. For sure. Um, and then you use edge feathering in correlation with bedding thickets to where you suck those bedding thickets. Game over. Closer to the side of the food plot that you hunt, and then you add the open and closed edge feathering. With the right wind and right access to an area. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the not fair. are made of. So, another thing you do, big thing to do this time of year, and you should have caught it last week, but plant native grasses and wildflowers. Yep. Um, it's the time of the year to do that. Hopefully you prep for it. Um, even if even if you haven't prepped for it, there's things you, you, for us. You know, you think about okay, well, I want to plant an entire field in in natives. That's going to take some prep time. But a lot of you guys are already prepped, ready for planting some native grasses and wildflowers just by your food plot edges. So for us, we talked about edge feathering that that side of the uh, perimeter around your food plot. You could also take five yards around your food plot and add some native grasses and wildflowers to make that edge even more productive. Beef it up. And now you have your edge feathered, woody species, shrubs, and then you take that right into your native grasses, wildflowers, to where if there's a deer on the other side of it, they sure the heck aren't going to be able to see into the food plot. They're going to have to come out there to see who's in it. So if you're grunting, if you're calling, whatever it is, you have a better chance to lure them into range because they have to come and find you. And here's the other thing, too. You're like, well, does that 
Does that affect you seeing them? Remember, you're up and above these these either you know edge feathered areas or the planted grasses. Like you can see deer as they're looking into the plot and still be able to call as needed um, or see them approaching. So you have the such an advantage from a tree stand or an elevated blind, elevated redneck. Like you you still have the advantage in upper hand. Well, if you're if you're looking for hunting strategy and you're and you're wanting to be able to see them coming from a long, long ways, there's a lo- there's a great chance something's going to go wrong with that plan. Um, so it, it if you're trying to improve the the food plot effectiveness and success rate in it, this is one of the best ways. You're going to make deer feel more comfortable, and because they feel more comfortable, they're going to spend more time in that food plot during daylight hours. Um, next we have, we've got two things left and we're coming up, we're right at an hour right now. So building fire lines, Oh yeah, it's a great time to start preparing for, um, fire lines. So build those fire lines, however it is, hand lines. If you're going to go in with chainsaw, weed eater, leaf blower, or you want to just doze them in or use a skid steer and some sort of grinder head attachment, start preparing those fire lines. You're going to wish you did come fire season. When the time is right and you don't have your fire lines, but it's time to burn and you're not prepared, you're going to miss out. This is the time to do it. Yep. Start start right now. And then don't overdo it with this one either. But if we're talking about old field management or um, native grass field management and you're like, I, I need more forbs, I need, more, I need some more herbaceous plants that are providing better forage, Dormant season disking. Yep. Don't light, overdo it. Light disking, quick turn, one pass, open up the ground, expose some of the soil to for forbs to be able to grow. I would say kind of the same thing, rule of thirds. If you run across a, a disc across it and you see uh, one square foot, a third of that should be turned up. Not the whole thing to where you have you take it and you just turn the whole whole field into dirt but it's basically a light disking just to expose some of that soil to where you can get more ragweed, pokeberry, um, goldenrod, whatever it is. It sets back the grasses a little bit and gives the forbs an opportunity to grow in that thick growing grass. That's right. You want those forbs in those in that mixture. For sure. So you've got things to do this winter. TSI, timber stand improvement, bedding thickets, hinge cutting, don't overdo it, edge feathering, dormant season disking, planting native grasses and wildflowers, and building fire lines. There you have it, straight from Land and Legacy. Um, no excuses for not doing anything. <laughs> you ought to be busy from now till turkey I got season. a lot of excuses. I mean, I, I can understand an excuse. I got to see a baby, hold a baby. We've been on the road for four days, Yep. and I'm ready to get home. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this Land and Legacy podcast. Catch us in, in Nashville. Please come join us. After oh, hours party. And and if you are planning on attending, please let us know out with the event um, on, on our, our Facebook, Facebook page. page. Yeah, let us know so we can kind of get a head count. Uh, but we'd love to see everyone there. All right, sounds good, guys. We'll catch you next week. See ya.